I will meditate on your precepts. I will fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant so that I may live and observe your word. Open my eyes so that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I live as an alien in the land. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your ordinances at all times. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So before uh, we begin with the scripture, I just wanted to say a couple things. One, uh, probably many of you know that I grew up in northwest Arkansas, went to the University of Arkansas, and um, and if you've ever watched an Arkansas Razorback game, uh, basketball or football, the Razorback fans, many of them have these plastic hog hat, red hogs. You ever seen one of those, you know, on their head? There's a rumor in town that there is a pastor maybe in one of the churches that you may know who has one of those. And you might see it tonight if you come to, uh, to the dinner, so just prepare yourself for that. Um, and also on a kind of a more serious note, um, the, the session of the church met yesterday in a, in a retreat. It was, it was awesome. We really had a fantastic, uh, I think, and fruitful time together. But as I was preparing for that on Friday, one of the things I was going to do was serve communion uh, to the session and for us to share that together at the conclusion of our time together. And so I was in my office, and I have a pretty large collection of, of uh, you know, glasses and, and carafts and plates and things. Some of them I've made. Some of them friends have made. Um, but as I was gathering those to take with me on Friday, I noticed uh, one of the uh, chalices I had was a wooden one that I had bought when I was in Haiti um, and it had been decorated and it's on the communion table if you if you can see it um, I, I took it with me as part of that our time together not knowing at all that that morning there would be a devastating earthquake uh, in Haiti uh, that, that has taken a lot of lives and done a lot of damage to a country that certainly doesn't need uh, anything else to happen. So uh, I have been in contact with our mission partner there in Haiti, and they are all safe. All their structures are safe. They're kind of in the northern suburbs of Port-au-Prince, and this was more to the south. Uh, but I placed that cup down there for us to, to be with them uh, in spirit during our time of worship. Um, I had it in the earlier service. Uh, when Lib leads us in prayer today, she'll, she'll bring that up. But I just ask you to pray for the people of Haiti uh, they have suffered, suffered greatly, and uh, this certainly doesn't help. So uh, anything that we can do to, uh, to support them and, and, and be in prayer for them would be greatly appreciated. Um, our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
If the member refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among you. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. So most of us, I would say, I think I'm pretty safe in saying this, that we spend maybe a large part of our life looking for Jesus, trying to find Jesus. But yet here in Matthew's gospel, he tells us exactly how to find him. It's like if you were playing hide and seek and the person that was sent off to hide stands out in the open and waves their hand and says, I'm here, I'm here, I'm right here. That's what Jesus is telling us. Jesus is also giving us a little bit of a warning that when people gather, egos, opinions, and differences surface and conflict can become an obstacle in us truly seeing each other and certainly seeing Jesus. So he offers a solution. This passage comes in the middle of a larger section in Matthew where Jesus is teaching the disciples and really anyone that will listen how to properly and faithfully live in community. Here are just a few examples. Leaders who might consider themselves greatest in the kingdom of heaven, are to take on the humbleness of a child and seek those in need. Disciples must avoid behavior that puts a stumbling block in the path of a fellow believer. They also must become radically trustworthy about their own personal morality. Believers must care diligently for one another so that no one gets lost. And fellowship in Christ requires constant and limitless self-control, forgiving one another 70 times if necessary. So in our reading today, Jesus addresses the question of what to do when another member of the church sins against you. It is clear that Jesus understands his position and his presence in the church then and now. He has already said in Matthew 18:15, "Whoever welcomes one such as a child in my name welcomes me." And where two, as we read today, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among you. I think maybe it's helpful for us to understand this uh, and try to, to help us to try to get at what Jesus is trying to tell us about the importance of dealing with conflict when when we're together. Maybe it, it helps, or at least it helped me as I was studying this passage, to think about Paul's description of the church in his first letter to the Corinthians. This is what Paul wrote. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. 
For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he choose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with great honor. And, and our less respectable members are treated with greater respect. Whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, given the great honor to the inferior member, that there may be of no dissension within the body. But the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. God has arranged the body and the church to be a communal experience. A community based in God's creation and sustained by Christ's presence. Each member of the body is of great value, and no member may be considered superior to another. Thus, the church is not a voluntary association of like-minded individuals that controls its corporate life by the will of the elite, the powerful, or the majority. It is a fellowship of believers united with one another in grace, forgiveness, reconciliation, and it is all under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus did not create a particular order of things, nor does he designate specific leadership or an institutional model for us to follow. The various historic and contemporary branches of Christ's church have spread and grown around the world. They have clung to different and sometimes cross-purposed callings. However, Jesus requires that any fellowship going by his name conform to a very simple rule. For us in that reformed branch of this large Christian tree, that we would be a measure, that he would be the measure to ourselves, our church, and our faith. And we would do that against this plumb line who Christ is and Christ's teachings. But that is not always easy. And maybe that's the point. If you really want to cherish something, I have found that you really have to kind of work at it to make it special. Many times in the Bible, Jesus speaks in unclear parables that have invited us for generations to kind of wrestle with the true meaning of what he was talking about. 
But there is an occasion where Jesus' words are remarkably clear. That can sort of be a double-edged sword, though, as Jesus' practical instruction might be easier for us to understand, but there's certainly very little wiggle room in our response. In this scripture reading today, Jesus takes it for granted that there will be conflict or sinning against one another in the church. It was there before the church even truly formed, and it is still here today. And I will add that Mount Pleasant Presbyterian Church doesn't own the market in conflict. It's part of who we are as humans. It's in every organization I think I've ever been involved in, both Christian and secular. But the true lesson, the mark of the disciple, is how we as individuals and as church and as a church respond to disagreement and conflict. If we are to forgive as God forgives, we have to pay close attention to the way that God forgives us. In the kingdom of God, forgiveness is not a feeling. It is a choice that we make in faith. We, God's wandering and disobedient children, need to understand this. Because many of us make the mistake of thinking that being able to forgive is a matter of when we feel like forgiving. That we will know the right time to forgive because we've decided it's the right time. But Jesus tells us that moment is not coming. Forgiveness is unconditional and it is not time-bound. When we venture down the road of reconciliation to forgive others, we have to take the risk of restoring that relationship back to where it was before we were hurt. It may not even grow beyond, it may never grow beyond that, but we have to, willing, we have to be willing to go back and start there. That means taking the risk of being hurt all over again. You have no guarantees that this will not happen. If we truly want to forgive, we have to take that risk, just as God has taken a risk with us. Many of us all know too well how painful church conflict can be. And we may know some who have left the church out of a sense of betrayal or as a sign of protest. They say something along the lines of, we might have conflict in our family, in our workplace, or school, but how can we have conflict in the church? We're supposed to be Christians. In this passage, however, Jesus seems to assume that there will be conflict among his followers. That makes us Christians, whether or not we fight, disagree, or wound one another. But how we go about addressing and resolving these issues is the true mark of discipleship. Of course, we're not supposed to have conflict as the world has conflict through yelling and slandering and gossiping and humiliating or even taking each other to court. But neither are we to sweep everything under the rug as if conflict does not exist. Smiling on the outside, but simmering and scalding and hating on the inside. Jesus calls his followers to a higher task of reconciliation and forgiveness, providing a way to carry that reconciliation out 
in those things that divide us. So Jesus spells out very clearly how we are to behave as Christian when conflict arises. First, we must go directly to the person that we are in conflict with and speak to them privately. This should be done before we discuss this issue with other people, before we harbor it in our hearts so long that it slowly poisons us against the possibility of reconciliation or forgiveness. Or maybe if we wait long enough and send enough frosty signals, they will come around and apologize to us. Or thanks to all of our modern technology, we can send a snarky email or post innuendo on social media. That will certainly help resolve the conflict, said no one ever. No, none of this will work. Now, my grandfather, who I love dearly, was a simple man, a farmer. I spent lots of my summers working on the farm with him. And one of my favorite phrases he used to share with me, if you have to eat something unpleasant, don't nibble. <laughs> he may have used different language, but <laughs> personal one-on-one -on -one reconciliation is not easy. In fact, if it was, the world would certainly be a much better place, I think. But according to Jesus, and we are his followers, that is our first step. So is this first step easy? No, it is not. But it is the right thing to do. And Jesus plainly tells us that. Step two of Jesus' plan for reconciliation and forgiveness is to involve others. But again, Jesus is not saying go gossip behind this person's back and you guys get together and figure out their line of attack so you can really put this person in their place. No, that's not what he says. The proper role of involving others is to provide perspective and insight to maybe the broader and bigger issue that might be at work. And if all this doesn't work, then Christ calls on us to involve the church. Now, Pastor Will Willimon, who's a Methodist bishop and was the longtime chaplain uh, at Duke Chapel in uh, Durham, North Carolina, he said this about that third step of reconciliation. The idea of imaging the church in reconciliation invites imagining how much work we would need to do in our own faith community to make them places of healing and reconciliation for our members as well as for outsiders. The point is clear. The church is meant to be a mediator in a world of misunderstanding, a peacemaker in a world that is filled with passive-aggressive believers. So we often forget when we Quote, Jesus' wonderful declaration where two or more are gathered, that Jesus is in the midst of this gathering, that Jesus in the, is in the midst of our hard conversations, our wrestlings, and our reconciliations, and our forgiveness. According to Jesus, the church should be reducing conflict through direct discussion, accountability, and transparency. When the church fails to live out this mission, when it hides from its responsibility to reconcile its members in the world, when we fail to invite Christ into the conflict, 
we shouldn't be surprised when it's hard to see Jesus at all, no matter how many of us gather together. Being people of forgiveness means that we're not waiting until someone earns our forgiveness. That is impossible. It's as impossible as trying to earn God's love. But the tension here is that the forgiveness Jesus calls us to seems maybe a bit reckless. It seems irresponsible, and the practice of it seems like it would lead to all kinds of abuse and imbalance in relationships, the same imbalances we see in our world today. Surely Jesus isn't calling for his followers to be the easy mark, to be pushovers and doormats. No, there sometimes will be consequences to these conversations. We should not forgive serious wrongs when we don't believe there has been true repentance or tolerate any kind of abuse or threats. But when we know, when we know there is true repentance, we have to let go of the obstacles that keep us distant from the person that's hurt us. So yes, there will be conflict in our personal lives and in the church. But it is through this conflict that we can show the world how to appropriately bind and loose one another in our life together. By doing this, we can show the world the power of Christ's presence in us and in our community. Maybe our answer is just finding the ability to accept for ourselves that unearned and unexpected grace that has been shown to us by our Redeemer Christ the Lord, in his life, death, and resurrection. Amen.